And yet, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Right, you be seated. Right, so what do you want to think through together first? The request to cast out a demon from your child? Or the fact that Jesus interacts with this Canaanite woman in the way that he does? Let me begin by saying that if you uh, were to do a very long, thoughtful, clear-eyed reading of the entire Bible, like if this is a task you decided to take on, uh, one of the things that you ought to notice is that the Canaanite people are one of the villains. They're not the only ones, but consistently throughout the arc of the narratives, they are the bad guys. You can track it through 2,000 years before Jesus, really all the way back to the book of Genesis and the story of Noah, in the Jewish scriptures, and then it follows Jesus into the New Testament. So back then, and I want to stress that, back then, if you were raised in a Jewish culture, you were generally taught to be suspicious of Canaanite people. And so here we are, a Canaanite woman in this region that was not typically a region where a lot of Jewish people lived back then. This is an other, let me say that, an other culture. And this woman approaches Jesus seeking healing for her daughter, specifically an exorcism. Jesus uh, completely ignores her, right? He, she, did you see that? And then his disciples, his students, they decide to intervene, and they end up piling on. They pile on this poor woman. They implore their teacher to send her away because she's shouting at them. She's bugging us. Right, tell her to move on. Oof. So then Jesus finally acknowledges her. Oh, finally, Jesus, the Jesus we know and love and trust. But no. He intervenes and acknowledges her, her only to tell her that he will not help her because he came only to help the lost sheep of Israel, his own people. But she's persistent. She persists. And again, she pleads with him, and Jesus, his retort, his answer to her is confounding. He basically calls her a dog. You do not feed the children's food, the Israelites, to the dogs, the Canaanites. But even then, she does not care. She came there for a reason. She's heard about this guy and what he can do. And she insists that, yes, okay, I'll grant you that. She's aware of the cultural realities in which she lives together with the Jewish people back then. But she insists that even the dogs end up eating some of the crumbs that fall from their master's table. What in the world is Jesus doing? So I want us to think together on this this morning. And there really are generally two approaches to this encounter that Jesus has. It's like a puzzle. Do you like puzzles? The first approach tends to suggest that Jesus was acting out of this cultural bigotry that he was taught. And 
I want to say this to us as a, as a community. There are things that you maybe very intentionally try not to teach your children. But often, they will be caught, not taught. Right? It's in the culture. It's in the atmosphere. And so that raises a question about Jesus. Was he taught this, or did he catch it? It was ingrained, because many at the time believed that when you mix cultures, the cultural mixing that occurred hundreds of years before, sort of towards the end of Solomon's reign, syncretism is the word for it. There's a high-dollar word, right? Syncretism. When you mix cultures, you weaken yours. And this led over centuries. It led to their being occupied by foreign powers. If only we had stayed pure, then we would not have become weak. And we would have been able to defend ourselves against these outside powers. Hmm. Tim Sean, you better be careful. Think about this. These attitudes can and still do infiltrate our thinking. These are ideas that maybe were taught, but maybe are also caught. This is the heart of modern xenophobia, that word where you are afraid of the other, of the stranger, of that which is different from you. So then, as now, in the thinking of his time, in Jesus' day, it was religious or cultural purity that they believed, many of them believed, that they would just get their house in order, the Messiah would come. Messiah would come, return, and bring Israel back to their glory. He would make Israel great again. And so Jesus was acting out of the attitudes that he was taught growing up. If we strengthen Israel, then Messiah will come. Helping outsiders was not something that they were against. It was just secondary. And so this first approach to this story suggests that this sassy Can Canaanite woman, that her faith caught Jesus off guard. And it actually woke him up a little bit. Made him see something that he wasn't seeing before. And Jesus was so moved by her tenacity that he, yes, healed her daughter. And then he presented her to his disciples and his students as an example of great faith. Something that they needed to see. That's the first approach. But there's a problem with this, and I don't know if you're thinking about that. The problem with this interpretation is that if you tend to hold to a more traditional view of the nature of Jesus, this idea that Jesus is God incarnate, he is the full human manifestation of God embodied in a human being, and that is a traditional Orthodox Christian belief, then that would mean that Jesus is perfect. You cannot be perfect and be a bigot. And it locates a smack dab in the center of one of the problems of trying to parse the relationship between Jesus and his divinity and Jesus and his humanity. Isn't this fun? <laughs> and so that leads us to the second approach, generally, to this story. Jesus the rabbi, the master teacher, was Jesus perhaps trying to see if he could sort of wake his disciples up to, to bigger things, to things that they had not been willing to see growing up in the culture that they did? 
And so he pulls this sassy Canaanite woman into his, into his ploy. So think about this. Take yourself back to high school or to college. Suppose a teacher wanted to make a point about this, you know, about excluding others. And uh, they did this by walking into class one day and they blatantly privileged one group of kids in the classroom to the exclusion of the other. Did this very, very blatantly. And they, they did this because they wanted to see if the kids who were being privileged would stand up, would say something, would call this out, call the teacher out. Was Jesus doing a little bit of prophetic street theater? Was he employing some satirical, some situational satire to see if he could get his disciples to go, um, uh, Rabbi, what, what are you doing right now in defense of this woman? And I will tell you that personally, I think Jesus was doing this. <laughs> I think it's because it's safe. It's safer. That he was playing chess on a three-level board. His final commission to his disciples before he ascended is sometimes called the Great Commission. And in that Great Commission, he says, I want you to take this spirituality that I have shared with you, this version of Judaism that I have held with you and, and processed with you, and I want you to take it now and give it away. Just give it away. Go out into all the world. Do it here in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and go out to all the ends of the earth and give this to everyone. That was his final final ask of his followers. So which interpretation do you want to live in? I wonder. Was the Canaanite woman teaching Jesus to love beyond what the culture of his time had taught him? Or was he testing his disciples to see if they could see more, see better, see in a more clearer way? about the thing that God really wants from all of this. And maybe more importantly, and this is the harder work, I admit this for me, for sure. Are you and I willing to do the hard work of identifying within ourselves the prejudices that we carry, and we've all got them? What would be the correct reasons to shut out to exclude, to be protective of our culture, if any. Uh, so kids are going back to school. I'm so sorry, children, um, about that. But we started back at Cassidy this past Wednesday. Uh, one of the things I like about my work is the absolute necessity for ritual. This is on every level. This is for faculty, administrators, and for students, for sure. This is true for public schools too. You gotta have a rhythm. You gotta have a, you know, there's too many plates spinning, uh, whether you're a teacher or a student. And so you have to have sort of a structure that kind of keeps you, you know, between the lines. And I have grown to really love this. Uh, in fact, at the beginning of summer, I always feel a little lost. Uh, Dean Churchwell, that doesn't mean you give me things to do in the summertime. <laughs> But one of the rituals that frames the, both the beginning and the end of my day is that when I arrive at school around 7.15, um, it's my job, I kind of like this, I've grown to love this, to unlock the chapel complex. So I unlock all the doors. And when I do that, I have this prayer that I share with God. 
And I asked God, I said, God, in the same way that you make yourselves open to us and you make yourselves vulnerable to us, teach me and the students, the faculty, administration, their families, teach us to be willing to be open and vulnerable to you so that we might know how to grow with you. And then 10 hours later, usually around 5.15, sometimes earlier, sometimes later, I lock up the chapel and I pray the inverse. God, teach us to know those things in our lives that we need to shut out, that seek to do us harm, to destroy us and to hurt us. Give us that wisdom. And ultimately, I think always in the middle of the day, I'm praying God to give me the wisdom and you to know the difference. I say this to us in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.